0: conversation with uh, someone here at Redeemer this week and during that conversation we began to talk about parenting and in parenting uh, we talked about that this odd phenomenon that if you're a parent you know exactly what I'm talking about and if if you're not a parent you probably know what I'm talking about whenever your kid throws a fit in a public place all right, whenever you, your kid throws a fit in the public place, you're, you're stressed out as a parent, especially as the parent of the child that is throwing this fit, the, the fit that's going on. You're really, really stressed out, and you're saying, "What? okay, why are they doing this? And you're trying to apologize, like they never act like this. And you know, they act like this. You, you just been in COVID, you know, for, you know, lockdowns for a long time, and they don't know how to function in the real world. And what we talked about in this conversation is really the only person that's mostly stressed out are college students and singles who just don't know how kids are supposed to like operate. Like, what's wrong with you? Are you are you okay? Are you going to do something? Are you going to stop it? But other parents are not really concerned. But the parent of the child feels like they have to apologize. And they have to be like, oh, you know, like make all these excuses for what's going on. You know, it's COVID and they just saw daylight for the first time. And since like last spring break and all, and all this other stuff. And, um, and if you're a parent of someone that has had a child that has thrown a fit, you're just like, you know what? They're just a kid. Kids act this way. Kids are childish sometimes. And so we, those of us that are parents that, again, if it's not our kid that's thrown a fit, we have a lot of grace to a kid that has thrown a fit in a public place because we're just like, yeah, that's how kids act. Kids act like kids. Childish people act childish sometimes. And honestly, that's some of the line of reasoning that, James is using in this book. He, he likes to argue his points in a really, really compelling way. He always tries to argue from the position of your identity should inform how you behave. Right faith should precede right actions. If you believe rightly, that will start your, changing your behavior. Uh, w- whenever you are acting like a child of God, there's a certain way that your actions, that everything about you begins to be transformed and changed. Why? Because your identity is changed. Just like we expect a child to sometimes act childish, James is saying a Christian is going to be formed into the instructions that I'm giving you right now. And this is how he argues over and over again he has kind of a natural flow of how he does this. And so what we've learned from James so far is that we should re- rejoice. Why? Why should we rejoice in the, in the midst of many trials? Because you belong to a sovereign God, a sovereign Father who loves you and knows what's best for you. And nothing's outside of his control. So you can rejoice in the midst of hardships. And so he's saying if you understand your identity, you're okay. You're okay whenever trials come, and you can actually rejoice because you understand your identity. Other things that James has taught us in chapter 1 is that we are able to obey the Word of God. We're able to not just be hearers and listeners of the Word of God. We're able to do what it says. Why? Because we have this new power of the Holy Spirit. New power of the Holy Spirit that has set us free from sin and death. And we can apply the grace of God into every situation in our lives. We can we can be doers of the word. We can apply the gospel so deep in our lives that it begins to transform us and to change us. Our identity in Christ can begin to transform and radically change our activity. Our identity radically transforms our activity. And really all James is calling for in this book is just consistency. Be consistent. Be consistent. Do you say you're a Christian? Um, Have you been transformed? Is the Holy Spirit now residing in you? Are you a temple of the Holy Spirit? If so, there's going to be an outflow of changed behavior because of the inward change. What happens inward always comes outward. That's the line of reasoning that James is using. And this is his argumentation. Live consistent lives. This is James, okay? This is James. And before we jump into chapter 2, he really sets up chapter 2 with last week, what Justin uh, preached a little bit at the end, which was verse 26 and 27. Of chapter one so if you have your Bibles make sure you have your Bibles with you open so that you know uh, that you're hearing from the Word of God Word of God so that you can read it and, and look at it as I, I as I'm reading it to you but he says in chapter 1 of verse 26 which sets up chapter two this is what pure religion looks like He says if you're really taught if you really think that you've been transformed and changed, if you really have been transformed into change, there's three things that are going to be true of you that are going to be able to manifest. If, it, if there's change on the inside, these three things will begin to grow outwardly out of you. Okay? You ready for them? The first thing that he says, number one, is that you begin to grow more and more in the controlling of your tongue. Ooh, ooh. Anyone else? Ooh. <laughs> uh, that stings a little, right? If if you've really been uh, transformed and changed on the inside, one of the things that will begin to grow into increasing holiness is you have better control over your tongue, better control over your tongue in such a way, in such a way that it you no longer have this instinct of slander and gossip the way that you used to before you knew Jesus. Or you no, have or no longer have this propensity for, for, for blasphemy, for using the Lord's name in vain, or maybe even using certain c- curse words that um, do not bring glory to God, but instead um, make it harder for you to witness uh, to, to God, for God. And so that's number one. That's one of the things that is changed whenever you have the inner transformation. Number two, this is what he says. He says, you visit widows and orphans. True religion that is undefiled means you go and you visit widows and orphans. You, you are a product that has been so radically changed that you go to those that can't give anything back to you. You, you, you organize your life around something and, and some people that, aren't, that you're not trying to network with. You're just giving of your life for no other reason but besides you love God and you love people and you're trying to obey him. So you're running to those that can't give you anything in return, visiting widows and orphans. Number three, it's this. You keep yourself unstained from the world. You keep yourself unstained from the world. This is just a call to personal holiness. So these three things are beginning to grow inside of you. Uh, The control of the tongue, visiting widows and orphans, and unstained from the world. And you see what James is actually calling us to. He's calling us to gospel centrality. In this. That's what he's calling us to. He's saying true religion is not just this or that. It's all of this. And so here's, this is what I mean by this. This is what I mean. Um, We have a, I guess a problem or just a natural tendency to either think whenever we're processing through what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we either lean left or we lean right. This is what I mean. And James addresses both of them. If you lean left, and just naturally in your in your human in your human life you read visit widows and orphans yeah that's what pure religion is and you say yes this is what we need to be doing this is the true religion we need to be visiting widows and orphans but that's usually coupled with it's usually coupled with not a desire for personal holiness or or even maybe not even a desire to uh, embrace some of the morals of the the other morals of the Word of God, aka um, uh, uh, your sexual preferences or anything like that, or even condemning those that look down on people that have different sexual preferences, and you are more inclusive and so you say, you know what those other uh things in the Bible that talk about, uh, you know, personal holiness, and those don't really matter because really what the true religion is is visiting widows and orphans. That's if you lean left. If you lean right, you read this, si- this side, and you say, yeah, control your tongue, control your t- tongue, and keep yourself unstained from the world. Don't, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do, all right? Just stay away, just stay away from all of that and all oh, the widows and the orphans. You know what? Really, the, all, the, all the poor people need to do is they just need to work harder. That's the right side. That's the more right side. But what does James do? What does James do? He says, no, center yourselves on the gospel. Center yourselves on the gospel, which is you are supposed to control your tongue, you're supposed to keep yourself unstained from the world, and you're supposed to visit widows and orphans, people that cannot give anything for you, anything to you, and you say, this is what it means to be transformed. This is the outward growth of an inward transformation that your life is characterized by a balance, a balance of not left-leaning, not right-leaning, but centered right on the truth of the gospel. This is what James is calling us to. He's calling us to this. Gospel centrality. Gospel centrality right in the middle. And so, why is this? Why is this? Because it's obvious, right? It's absolutely obvious. God um, cares for those that cannot care for themselves. Why? Because he cared for me and you. Those that... Call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Had to recognize that I am poor in spirit and lack faith, and I needed Christ to come and transform me and save me. I'm a poor beggar that needs to throw myself on the bleeding mercy of the God of the universe, and I need to I need to run to Him like that. And so, therefore, He says, "If you if you've had that transformation in your heart, you will treat other people the exact same way that that don't have an advocate that that are." Um, that are orphaned and widowed, that don't have a family anymore, and you go and you say, I will be their family because God adopted me into his family. And so um, not only that, but whenever we are adopted into the family of God, we we begin to look like the God that adopted us, right? That's what James is calling us to. We begin to look like him. And so personal holiness, controlling of the tongue, we, we speak about the mission of God, we speak about the glory of God because that's what the word of God is filled with, and, and we desire to obey it and be doers of it. Why? Because whenever you've been adopted, whenever you've been, been adopted, you want to teach your adopted children. Or if you have adopted someone, which we have a lot, uh, one of the greatest joys and answered prayers, honestly, of Redeemer Church is that there's so many people in this congregation right now that have said, I'm answering the call to go and visit the widows and orphans, and I'm bringing them into my home and giving them a home, giving them a home. And as I talk to you about it, one of the hardest things to do uh, about bringing uh, an, an orphan into your home is doing what? Giving them the values of a Turnbow, giving them the values of a Kemp, giving them the values of a Richie, giving them the values of a holesberry, Right? You're trying to teach them, hey, you're no longer an orphan. You are coming into a new family, and this is how we operate. This is how we operate in the same way. This is what James is calling us to. James is calling us to, you're adopted in the family of God. Therefore, therefore, operate. Operate under the the new ethic of the family of God. And so not, not only are we going to visit orphans and widows, but we're also going to be pursuing the holiness that God requires in the Word of God. Makes sense, right? Makes sense. And this is what we are called to. And this is the setup. This is the setup for chapter 2. And look how he starts chapter 2. It says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Again, all James is really calling us to is consistency. He's saying, you cannot hold on to the the glory of the Lord with one hand, and then once you've grasped the glory of the Lord, saying, with my faith, I am grasping on to the Lord of glory. I am loving and cherishing Jesus. And then with another hand saying, and I'm using my intellect to try to parse out the glory of other people to see who deserves my time, really. He's saying that's inconsistent. You can't do that. You cannot show partiality. You cannot show partiality. Well, you say, Cody, what is partiality? Uh, and the NIV says favoritism. Don't show favoritism. The Greek word is actually uh, a combination of two words, and it's uh, literally in English. It's saying receiving the face. I know that doesn't make any sense, but uh, apparently back then it was a brand new word invented by uh, the New Testament writers. But it says, to receive the face means to make judgments based on people's external appearances. Uh, This is obviously where we get partiality or favoritism. By uh, looking at people and saying, I am giving you a certain value or worth based on, or I'm going to give you a certain amount of my time based on your external appearance based on your external uh, Factors and you might be saying Cody Okay, great move on next point. I don't do that. Hold on hold on. Let's slow down and let's evaluate Let's evaluate in this room because I think for so many of us if you say oh, I don't do that I I'm not I'm not this I don't show favoritism. I I'm impartial towards everyone Let's think about how you spend your time. Who do you ask out for lunch? Is it someone that's like you or is it someone that's a little bit above you socially that you can may, maybe potentially network with that you can gain something from? Who do you ask out, out, out for coffee? Is it someone that, uh, that, that is a couple of rungs higher than you in the social status that you think that maybe you can get something gleaned from them? Moms, whenever you are going out to play dates, who are you inviting to those play dates? Is it the least of these? Or is it someone in your exact same stage of life exact same stage of life with the exact same interests as yours that you can just enjoy and say, man, why don't I just do this every single day? And why aren't I closer with these friends every single day who are just like me, that think like me, that vote like me, that look like me, that smell like me? We'll get to that in a little bit. All right. Or I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. So just buckle up, everyone. Uh, let's talk about mask for a second. All right. Whenever you walk into a store, How do you walk into that store? If you walk into Target and you're not wearing a mask, do you see everyone wearing a mask in there and say, heathens, you know, heathens, they're all just sheep following what the government says. They, I, I have conquered, I have stepped outside of the matrix and I, that's partiality. That's partiality. Or do you walk into uh, natural grocers with your mask on faithfully and you see someone with a, without a mask on and you just say, that is the worst type of person? You don't know anything about them, but you say, that's the worst type of person. That's the problem. That's not why the pandemic's still going on. They're probably why it's going on in India right now. That's partiality. That's partiality. Uh, our, really, our news newsreel is what is it doing? It's ratcheting up this division, this fault line in our humanity that says you're either on my side or you're not. And if you're not on my side, you're not just wrong, but you're somehow evil. You're somehow evil. And then look what, look what this passage is saying. Show no partiality. Stop it. It should, there should be no partiality in the family of God, period. That's all James says. And whenever James says that, you're just like, James, it's a, a little tough, right? It's like, aren't there nuance? No, he's just saying, point blank, no partiality. And I think if we dig, I think we dig in our hearts of how we spend our time, of how we want to spend our time, of who you think to invite to certain things, you're, you, you can look at your life and be like, oh, Wow. I might be eat up with this. This might be all over me. That really, my life right now is characterized by favorite, trying to show favoritism to how I spend my time and how I, how I invest. And you say, Cody, you, you're missing the point. That's not partiality. That's just how friendships work. Really? Uh, tell Jesus that. How did he pick his 12 disciples? How did he pick his 12 disciples? Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, hanging out over the barbecue every single night for three years. Simon, the zealot, is someone that thought, you know what? We have to overthrow Rome. And who was Matthew, the tax collector? He says, I'm capitulating. I'm working with with Rome. And he says, y'all two are family. Y'all are brothers and sisters. Y'all are brothers in Christ that are operating together. Show no partiality. Let bygones be go- bygones. Forgive as I have forgiven you. That's how Jesus interacted with them. That's how Jesus chose his disciples. And he's, James is making the argument that it's inconsistent to have faith in Christ and also show partiality. Because faith demands. What does it demand? It demands that we say, I am coming to God empty-handed. There's nothing in my hands that I can bring to make me seem righteous to him. I'm throwing myself on the mercy of God. And everyone that is coming to Christ is throwing themselves on the mercy of God. So we are all on the same playing field. We're all on the same playing field. So if we have grabbed onto that, that we're all the family of God based on pure grace, then how can we? How can we be showing partiality and distinctions among each other by saying, I'm not going to talk to them after this church service because they're different than me? How? It's inconsistent. It's absolutely inconsistent with what God is calling us to and what what James is calling us to right now. So the first thing that he says in verse 1, if you're showing partiality, stop it. Okay? (laughs) Band, come on up. I'm just kidding. Then he gives a couple of examples of how this plays out, and he talks about it from a socioeconomic standpoint. In verse 2, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring in fine clothes comes into your gathering, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, so he's creating this difference between a rich man and a poor man. And in Greek, this, this, uh, this word, wearing a gold ring, is one word. So it's really, it's really, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And it's like he's wearing a gold ring, which is like apparently a big deal for a prince or I guess uh, today, It's probably like a rapper walks in, uh, uh, like a famous artist or something, uh, flashing like his jewelry real, real big. Just got back from Nacol's, got a big thing, right? And then then he just walks in just flashing that thing, right? And uh, he smells good. You you can all tell that he is very, very important. He has an entourage. And then he contrasts it with this person who is in shabby clothing this word shabby is not just like torn and and broken up and really really old but it also has this connotation of excrement on it so it's like this idea that another person came running in being chased from a dog like down the street comes running in was so scared of the dog had an accident all over himself and then walks into our assembly that's the, pic- that's the picture. So you got Jay-Z over here and this guy over here. And then what he's saying is it's a wrong thing for you to go over to Jay-Z while saying, uh, someone else can deal with this disaster mess over here. And he's saying it's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. He says that's how you show distinctions among yourself. And look what he says. Look what he says in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? He says, whenever you do that, you are putting yourself in the place of judge. And who's the judge of everything? You? No. God. God is. And because he's saying you're making yourself a judge, you're showing partiality. And when you do this, look what he says. That's evil. That's evil. Not just it's wrong. Not just it's, it's awkward or insecure or inconsistent. He's saying, that's evil. That's evil, and that's showing a lack of faith in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. A lack of faith. Verse 5, let's move on. It says this. What's another reason why we show partiality? It's, it's not just that we're evil and separated from God. It's also uh, that we're ungodly. And verse 5 says this. It says, listen, my beloved brothers. Notice the tenderness in James' voice. Sometimes he sounds really, really angry, and then he comes back with the beloved brothers. (laughs) And he just said, okay, come, come back in. I know this is serious, but listen. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? See what he's saying? Why do you love? Why should you move towards the poor? Because it's being godly. This is what it means to be godly. God is the father to the fatherless. He's the husband to the widow. He's a a lover of the alien. And he moves towards them with grace and with gentleness. And he bestows upon them love and dignity and respect. And this is what it means for us to mirror our great God as a gospel-centered community. That the, the natural reflex of our, of our life, whenever we see the discarded one, when we see the unpopular person, whenever we see those that are deemed as outcasts by society, we don't shun them or ignore them. We move towards them. We move towards them in love. Why? Because we see ourselves in them. We see how we have been that before. And Jesus, in his grace, he moved to us when we were poor and received us into his family. And this is evidence that you have faith in the Lord of glory whenever you say, I'm going to move towards those that are different than me. Uh, This was a lesson that, by God's grace, I learned as a young man. And um, it was taught um, to me by my mother and my dad. And and they were very faithful uh, to teach me, always love the least of these. And um, my parents, and especially my mom, taught me this by how her dad taught her, he said, the number one thing that McDaniels do, which is my mom's maiden name, is we love the least of these. We always move towards those that the world deems as unimportant and unspecial. And so therefore, my mom uh, got a degree from Texas Tech University in special education. It went so deep in her heart that she said i'm going to do whatever it takes to love the least of these to where i will even work vocationally to serve those that are disadvantaged in one way or another and uh, there's a, a really great story that my aunt who is my mom's sister um, I, I love to tell this story uh, she was at sykes center mall believe it or not right here in Wichita falls texas doesn't even live here and uh, she grew up in archer city And one time, she was shopping with her mom, my mama. and uh, when they were out shopping, a a man came up to my aunt Teresa and said, "Teresa, it's so good to see you. It's amazing. How long has it been? Thirty-five years. I, I, how are you doing? Where are you living? What's going on? What's uh, tell me everything." And they sat and they talked there for about twenty minutes, and then they hugged and they left. And my grandmother asked my aunt, she said, who was that? Who was that? And she goes, mom, I'm not sure. I can't remember his name. But I tell you this, I know it was one of the least of these that you told me to love. And 35 years later, she made such an impact as a kid, as a a teenager to this person, that he recognized her and it made his day, made his day just to see her. And that's what the people of God, that's what the people of God are called to be. It's called to make the, the least of these day every single day. And, and, and the world will say, what is up with them? Why don't you discard them the way that we discard them? It's because we are them. We are them spiritually. And we have been given the chosen. We have been given the chosen position at the, next to our great God and king at the, at the table of his fellowship And we want other people to join us with with him. With him. And so we are called to love the least of these over and over and over. And here's another reason why we typically show partiality is James begins to cut right to the heart and says, It's because you lack faith. We show partiality because we lack faith. He, said, he says this, it says, why do you turn towards the rich, those who oppress you, those who drag you into court and those who blaspheme the honorable name? Why do you care? Why do you care about those that don't care about you? And what James is implying here is that uh, it's whenever we let go of the Lord of glory and faith, whenever we let, begin to loosen up our grip on the Lord of glory, we, because of our nature, being made in the image of God and being made for glory, will begin to grasp at other forms of glory. And so we'll see a shiny person or we'll see someone wearing, you know, a gold ring wearing guy or whatever, and we will go to them and say, give me a little bit of that glory. I need a little bit of because I'm, I'm empty over here. I'm loosening up to the grip of faith that I have on Christ and I can't help but grab onto something else. And so it says, even though, even though this hypothetical rich person doesn't treat them right or goes out of their way to oppress, oppress the people of God, will say, I'm made for glory, and it looks like they have a little bit of shine, and I'm just trying to get my shine on with them. A perfect example of this is a, 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 a flick that I recently watched with my beautiful wife, The Devil Wears Prada. All right, don't show partiality about my movie choices, okay? This is just what happens whenever you get bored, all right? And, and to be fair, I, I just thought... I just thought it was about spiritual warfare, okay? I wasn't sure what the movie was about, but it, here, here it was, it was about Meryl Streep, spoiler, if like, you've never seen the movie or whatever, and she's just this terrible like, person, but she's at the top of her industry, and there's all these people that are just constantly sucking up to her, continually just saying, oh, you're great, you're great, and then they turn around, like, this person's terrible, but what are they doing? They're grasping at her glory. They wanna use her for something, they want to use her to advance their own careers, which is the whole plot of the movie. And what James is saying here is we, why, why do we run towards the rich even though they um, treat us poorly? It's because we can't help but grasp for glory. And so if we're not holding on firm to the glory of God, we will grasp at something else. And this is the example that he gives us. And we have no reason as the church to do this. Why? Because we have access to all the glory that all of humanity and all of creation has, has access to offer to us in the face of Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. We've been reading this a lot together as a church. And it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. We can behold Christ. Everything we would ever need is found in him. But we, we can't help whenever we turn our face from him just a little bit, we'll try to grasp something else. It's when it's, it reminds me of the C.S. Lewis quote that says that we are like children who are so content playing in the mud pile when just on the other side of the hill there's a vacation at the sea why are we content just getting out of our car and playing in this mud pile of other glories, of, of, of lesser things, whenever we have the holiday at the sea right on the horizon? We have the glory of Christ that we can grasp and behold in, as followers of Jesus. And that's what we should pursue. And, and James summarizes this as the new ethic. The new ethic that we should do as adopted sons and daughters of Christ, which is the royal law. Notice where he says that. What is the royal law? He describes it as you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 9, it says this. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. As transgressors. He goes on to say that if you fail at one point of, of this law, you have broken it all. If you fail at one point showing partiality, it's as if you're guilty of breaking all of the law. And this comes from James chapter two, verse ten. And uh, if you've been around Christian circles for just half a second, you'll know that we love to quote this, this, uh, this verse, this verse that says, you know, if you're if you break one one law, you're guilty of. Uh, the whole thing. And basically, we like to use this in kind of our Christian culture to try to mitigate all sin, and which is not what James is trying to do here. We try to say, oh, you know, lying is the same as murder, and so, like, really, sin, you know, it's, it's all just kind of the same, and we're missing the point if we use that verse to apply it that way. Really, what God... What James is trying to communicate is that God is so valuable that one misstep means that you have to be sent straight to hell. One misstep because he is so holy, because he is so righteous, because he is so clean and pure. One impurity is like a piece of tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. We cannot be in his presence. We cannot be in his presence. And so this passage is trying to teach us how valuable God is if we break the law of partiality, not that sin is no big deal. He says that for he who said do not commit adultery, he also said do not murder. You see that the issue is not about the law that you broke, but it's about the value of the lawbreaker that you offended. Let me explain it this way. Um, Moms out there, Imagine uh, your you give your son an instruction. Hey, son, can you go mow the lawn? And they pipe off. No, not gonna do it. What's gonna happen right after that, moms? If that's the the tone that is given. Discipline, hopefully, you know, right, like uh, like that person Don mess- Yeah, Davis just did a slapping motion. Okay, you're gonna get you're gonna get beaten. All right. That's with that type of tone, that's time for severe discipline because why? Why? And imagine you come forward with the discipline, they say, Whoa, 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 I just I just cleaned my room and stuff. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, have you obeyed some laws today? We're talking about, have you obeyed me now? We're talking about the value. It, it, the reason why you're about to be smacked, as Davis said over there, is because you disrespected your mom. And in the same way, that's the point that James is trying to make here. If we, if we break one of these laws, we're breaking the value. are breaking the law of the value of how great this God is is. And the same God that commanded us to not commit adultery also commanded us to not show partiality. This is how serious it is. This is how serious he's making this point, that the same God that says, do not murder, also said, don't show partiality. And whatever you do, you're guilty of the whole law. He's trying to show you how valuable and how serious this command is, that God is trying to inform us. And so, He goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, he said, In light of all of this, so speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. And and for judgment is without mercy to those who have been shown no mercy. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. See, that's what the gospel says, that the mercy of God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ triumphs over the judgment of God that we deserve because Jesus took it in our place. So what do we do? What do we do in light of this very severe call to not show partiality in every aspect of our life as Christians? Well, I think the first thing we do is we pray. We pray and ask God, where am I showing partiality in my life? Where am I showing partiality in my life? And there's several ways that you can begin to think through this. Are you moving towards people that dress like you? you're probably showing partiality then. If someone's clean clean cut, um, no tattoos or whatever, and you only talk to the clean cut, no tattoos people, you're probably showing partiality. If you have tattoos and you're not clean cut, you're doing, you know, the, like the perfect stubble look, right, that's on that one commercial, um, and you're only going to those that look like you and think like you and vote like you, you're showing partiality too, and God hates it. God says it's evil, and so we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. What are other ways that we know that we are showing partiality? Look at your friend group. Look at your friend group. How diverse is your friend group? Socioeconomically. Do you have friends of different classes than you? Do you? Do you? Or do you stay in your own class? Do you stay in your own class and you say, well, it's just the people I work with. It's just the people that I'm around. The people of God pursue. The same way that God pursues the poor, the people of God go and pursue those that are different than us. For the glory of God. For the the beauty of the church. For the beauty of his bride being made beautiful. What are some other ways? Landon Moss helped me with this one. He said this. He said, do you value yourself more or less because of your intellect? How do you look at yourself? Do you val- what do you value about yourself? Do you value the way that you dress, the way that you look, uh, your, your intellect, how many degrees you have, your, your bank accounts, your style, your worldview? Do you va- what do you value about yourself? And most likely, whatever you value about yourself is how you're showing partiality in your relationships. How you're showing partiality in your relationships. So we need to have a humble heart to say, God, can you reveal to me how I'm breaking this commandment that you said was on par with murder? And committing adultery, and can you cause me to repent? Can you say with a clear conscience, command me, Lord, and then give me what you command? Transform and change my heart. Help me to repent. Help me to change. I remember there was um, there's a big ministry that I was a part of. Whenever I was a youth minister, and it was all about it was all about uh, serving uh, food. Uh, to those that were economically disadvantaged and had food scarcity. And uh, we did this ministry for years and years and years while I was there. And year, about year two, I felt super convicted by the, by the Holy Spirit of like, hey, we don't even know these people. We don't know the people that we're serving week in and week out, and they're the same people. What if we transformed everything that we did we were giving the food out at the football field. We, trans, uh, we, we changed it to where we would pass out the food by hand inside the church. And I called, called a person who's a great supporter of Redeemer Church who lives in North Carolina. Her name's Sarah Deluzio, who is a world-class musician. And I brought her in, and she started playing, um, playing the piano and singing hymns while we, as a church, just began to interact and talk to people. And you might be on fire right now and saying, yeah, you're right. Cody, what are we going to do? How are we going to go serve the poor? Let's go. What program are we a part of? Let's go get on that program. And maybe the very first step that we need to take is you need to go have a conversation with someone that doesn't look like you, dress like you, vote like you, or even smell like you. And that might be the very first step that we need to take as a church is not make some big, robust program, but we need to go and interact and have someone and invite someone to have a conversation, not as a project, not as someone that you can feel superior, superior over, but as someone that you say, I'm interested, I want to learn, and I love. I want to I grow. And that might be the very first step that we need to take as a church. Because listen, we have a lot to learn from the poor. We have a lot to learn from the poor. Number one, Um, Of course, they're made in the image of God, and so um, we we have something to learn from every single image-bearer. But number two, the poor understand and get the gospel quicker than the middle class and the rich. I'm going to say that again. The poor more instinctively understand the gospel more than the middle class and the rich. You want to know why? Because the poor see the offer of salvation, of the bleeding charity, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is nothing you can do to make God love you. There is nothing you can do to earn his favor. There is nothing you can do to become righteous. All you have to do is throw yourself on the mercy of the one true God who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the poor say, I know how to do that. I can do that. So we have a lot, we have a lot to learn from the poor if you're middle class in spirit, if you're middle class in your worldview. If you're upper class in spirit and in your worldview, you have a lot to learn because the natural reflex of the poor is to say, I'm following that God. And that's what James is saying in this passage as well. What's amazing, one of the most clearest explanations of the gospel is found in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ, the righteous, died as a poor man, naked with no clothes, smelling terrible, so that you and I can be brought into the kingdom of God where there's joy and everlasting fellowship with the God that we were created for. This is our God. My hope for us as a church is that we heed the words of James, be a gospel centered community who learns and loves from the poor. Loves the poor in such a way that we say, we're going to be transformed forever and ever and ever because of what Christ has done in our place. And we're going to move towards them even though they can't give us anything in return. And we're going to pursue holiness because we want to look like the God who adopted us. Okay? Let's pray.